series addressing tough, tough topics, tough questions, seeking if we can find answers in the Bible to some of our theological questions. I, I will say this to open the series. There are some questions that we ask that we don't get answers to. We do know that God is always good. We do know that God loves us and is always with us, but we don't always get answers to all of our questions. And I would never presume to be so arrogant as to suggest that we can somehow have everything all figured out or that we somehow have all the answers to all of our questions. We do not. Uh, but God has blessed and gifted us with his holy scripture and with minds to read it and understand it. And so we will take our questions to the Lord and to the Holy Scriptures and see what we can find out about God and His will and about ourselves. And that's the idea behind this sermon series. It's not that we will, at the end of it, know everything there is to know about God. We won't. Uh, but it is our desire to know as much as He has revealed to us. And we're going to search the Scriptures together in order to discern that. So if you're a reader of the bulletin, and I hope you are, then you'll notice that I have been soliciting input from you all for this sermon series. I have never done that before here, but I um, am excited to do it now for this series. Normally, I set my preaching agenda by selecting a book of the Bible, and then typically I will preach right through the entire book. I do that because each book in the Bible is a coherent document. Each book of the Bible has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they hold together, and I think that it's best to treat the books of the Bible as, as a whole, uh, rather than to just pull bits and pieces out uh, in isolation from the rest. I also preach through whole books of the Bible because by doing that, that prevents me from setting the agenda for the preaching and just preaching on whatever I feel like preaching on. That forces me to preach on whatever topic comes up in whatever book I've selected, and that's a good thing, I think. That's a way for God to set the agenda instead of me to just pick and choose what I feel like preaching about. That method is called expository preaching. And I stand by it, but I also recognize that's not the only way to do things. There are other ways to do it. And so for this series, I'm not preaching right through any book of the Bible. I'm taking suggestions from you all. So if anyone has a topic that they would like to hear me preach on, or if anyone has a particular passage of Scripture that you would just like to hear a sermon about it, you just let me know. And I will be very, very happy to do that. No passage of Scripture and no topic is out of bounds for this series. I will gladly preach on absolutely any passage or topic that anyone would like me to preach on. So as I mentioned in the bulletin announcement, I won't take anonymous requests. And that's because I want to be able to follow up with these requests and ask questions of you about, well, why... Why did you pick it? Why is this important to you? What is, your, what is your question about this passage? What is your history with this topic? I want to have a conversation, but I want you to know that I will not publicly name the person who requested the sermon. That's private. That's between me and you, and I'm not going to announce that, okay? But I do want to know so that I can follow up personally and have a conversation, okay? So, so far... I have received five requests, uh, which means that this series will last at least 
five weeks. Uh, but there is still time, and I would be very happy to add more. And I really honestly will take every single request. So send me an email or give me a phone call or stop by my office if you have a request for a sermon in this series. All right. For today's sermon, I have been asked to preach on to discuss the relationship between faith and works. And I have been asked to address the apparent contradiction between what James, the Apostle James, says about faith and works in his epistle and what the Apostle Paul says about faith and works in the book of Romans and try to make sense about what those two are saying about faith and works and how they fit together. That's a great topic. I'm glad I was asked to preach on it. That's a topic that has been discussed and debated ever since Paul and James wrote their epistles. And so let's ask for the Lord's help in this, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us together in your house. Your food, our food, is your word. Uh, we don't live by bread alone. We do need bread to live. We have bodies, physical bodies, that need sustaining, and we are thankful for the way that you provide food, physical food, bread, for our bodies to sustain them. But that's not, we don't alone live off that. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We live by the food of Scripture. And so I pray, Lord, that you would nourish us spiritually this morning through the good and wholesome and nurturing food of your holy word. In Christ's name, amen. When I was asked to preach on this topic, I was reminded of a conversation that I had. I was speaking with a Mormon, and we were discussing, it was a friendly conversation, uh, we were discussing both the similarities, but also, more importantly, we were focusing on the differences between our understanding of God. Who, who is God and what does he expect of us? And as we were speaking, we realized, well, there's some differences here between our understanding. And uh, the question came up in our conversation as to whether people are saved by faith or whether they're saved by their good works, or whether they are saved by perhaps a third option would be a combination of their faith and their good works put together is what saves them. Now we had a Bible on the table as we spoke, and so being a good Protestant, I grabbed that Bible and I instinctively turned to what I think is one of the strongest statements in the New Testament about our salvation by grace alone. Do you know where I went? Where would you go? I went to Ephesians in chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. Those verses say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. Could that be any more clear? I mean, for me, that is an open and shut case. We are saved by grace, through faith, not a result of works. Done. <laughs> let's, let's move on and talk about something else, because that just answered that. But sure enough, the person that I was speaking with grabbed the Bible out of my hands and turned to a different book of the Bible. He turned to James chapter 2 and verse 24. 
and he read for me, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's a direct quote. This person concluded that, well, we're not saved by faith alone. It says literally word for word, we're not saved by faith alone, but we are saved by a combination of faith and works. It's right there in the Bible. All right, well, now we have a tough topic. Paul says we're saved through faith and not by works. James says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. What is going on here? This is not some esoteric question about an obscure biblical issue. This lies right at the heart of the Christian faith. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by our works or by some combination of the two? Now again, as Protestants, we instinctively want to say that, no, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We've heard that all of our lives. But what are we going to do with James, who appears to be saying the opposite? Now, you know me well enough to know that I do not think that James and Paul contradict each other. I don't think that the Bible contradicts itself. But what is going on here? Well, I want for us to read the passage in James now. And then we'll try to make sense of it. So you can turn with me if you like. And Wes is going to project it for us to the book of James. If you're looking for James, you have to go all the way past all of those letters that Paul wrote. And then you're going to hit uh, Hebrews, whoever wrote that. And then right after Hebrews, you're going to find James. And I'm going to read in James and chapter 2. And I'm going to, I'm going to read verses 14 to 26. James 2. And verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. 
As I read that, what I see there, there's a lot of words, a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, but James is really only making two points in this passage, and in fact, it's really only one point said two different ways. The first point here, as I see it, is this. Faith without works is not saving faith. Okay? That's the first point. Faith faith without works is not saving faith. And the second point is that saving faith and works are not two separate entities, but they always, always go together. One thing. All right, so those are the two points of the sermon. Those are the two things we're going to consider together today. So point number one, faith without works is not saving faith. It's something else. That's James's point in, in verses 14 to 17. He begins uh, with two rhetorical questions in which there is an implied negation. A lot, a lot of commentators thinks think that James is actually a sermon. The book of James was a sermon that was preached and then written down. It does kind of hold together like that. It, it delivers like that when you read it. So he's asking, as a good orator, he's asking rhetorical questions. And the implied answer that he's looking for here is the negative. So he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now the answer that he's looking for there is it's no good. No value in that. And then he asks another question. Can that faith save him? The answer he's looking for there is no. It cannot. And then in verses 15 and 16, James gives an illustration. He says that, well, if a brother or sister comes to you who needs food and clothing, right? there's real need there. There's work to be done. There's something to do. And if you respond with just words, not works, you say, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without doing anything to help that person, then what good have you done? The answer there is nothing. You've done no good. You've just said some words that didn't help anybody. We could paraphrase James's point like this. If you say it but don't do it, you didn't mean it. That's what he's saying there. If you say it but you don't do it, you didn't mean it. The person in the example is giving lip service to compassion, which is easy to do. He's saying things that sound compassionate, but he's not doing anything compassionate. And by not doing anything, he's proving that despite his compassionate words, he knows what to say. He is not a compassionate person. Because compassionate people don't just speak compassionate words, they act compassionately. And the the parallel that James is drawing here, the reason he's using this as an illustration, is because he's saying that people who only talk about faith but do not act in a way that gives evidence of their faith are really proving that they do not possess real faith. Because if they did, they would show that faith by their works. Thus, faith without works is not saving faith. In fact, faith without works is not faith at all, which is the point of verse 17. See, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself is not faith. Faith by itself is not anything. It's non-existent. It's dead. That was the point. John Bunyan made this point 
I think so effectively in, uh, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, which, which you know I love and read regularly. There's a character in Pilgrim's Progress called Talkative. Right? And you know in the book all the characters are named after the thing they're trying to illustrate. Talkative in the book is, is, is intended to illustrate the point that James is making. Uh, the, the character, the main character Christian says this about talkative. Christian says, he talks of prayer, he talks of repentance, he talks of faith, he talks of the new birth, but he knows but only talk of them and there is neither prayer nor sign of repentance for sin in his life. He thinks that hearing and saying will make a good Christian and thus he deceives his own soul. Hearing is but the sowing of seed. Talking is not sufficient to prove that fruit is indeed in the heart and in the life. Right? That's what James is saying. The key distinction that James is making is between what we might call theoretical faith, faith, faith that knows the right words in theory, and functional faith, faith that functions, faith that acts. If your faith never progresses beyond the bounds of theory, if all you do is talk about faith and never act out your faith, then you don't have faith. Faith without, word, faith without works is like a married single person. What's a married single person? Well, there is no such thing. They don't exist. Right? That is a self-contradictory and meaningless uh, category. There are none. You're either married or you're single. You're not a married single person. Faith without works. You cannot separate them. And you can be absolutely sure that Paul does not disagree with James on this point. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That's Paul. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk. It's not just all about talk, but in power. That sounds an awful lot to me like Paul is affirming that faith without works is dead. Faith that is all talk and no action is dead. So when Paul writes that one is saved by faith apart from works of the law, that's what he writes in Romans 3, he does not mean that it would be possible for someone to have real saving faith that is not accompanied by works. He is simply making the point that the works are not what save us. The works are the natural outworking of real saving faith. Works give evidence of faith. So on this point, Paul and James are in agreement. Real faith always results in works. And if there are no works present, then saving faith is not present. Now, the works themselves do not save us but they give evidence that saving faith is present. God is not looking to build his church on earth with a bunch of empty talkers. He's not impressed by the most articulate theologian if those words are not backed by action, evidenced by action. And God provides us with opportunities every day to demonstrate our faith by our works. He gives us opportunities every day to live out our faith, to walk according to our faith. He gives us those opportunities in small ways and in large ways. And you can, 
You can just insert your own illustration here, right? You can think of ways that God provides for you to live out your faith on a daily basis in a tangible way. You don't need me to tell you an illustration here, right? Real faith, real faith does not engage in the exploitation of others, right? Real faith stands up for the oppressed. Real faith aligns itself with God's will, with God's values, and works towards those. Real faith raises a voice on behalf of the oppressed. Real faith takes action on behalf of the oppressed. Real faith acts. It helps out when it sees a need. Right? Real faith does not, if you think of the story of the Good Samaritan, real faith does not go across to the other side so that they don't need to be near the real need, so that they don't need to confront the real need, so that they can friend, pretend that it's not there. But real faith goes to the need and helps out, just like the Good Samaritan did. Real faith does not objectify other human beings by engaging in lustful thoughts and actions. Real faith is generous with its resources. Real faith recognizes that anything we have is a gift from God. It's not ours, it's His. And therefore, real faith is generous with that which God has entrusted to us. There are ways that faith acts. And if those actions are not present in any measure in someone's life, then faith is not present. In that life. Now, obviously, no one's perfect. I know that. The Bible recognizes that. God knows that. We know no one's perfect. No one gets this right all the time. We know that. But there should be actions that indicate the presence of faith. Our lives should be moving in a Godward direction. And so that's the first point. Faith without works is not saving faith. Faith without works is not anything but empty talk. And now we move on to the second point, which is that saving faith and works are not two separate entities. They always go together. We're not... The the, the reason that James makes this point is because it would be natural for us, after hearing point one, to think that, oh, okay, well then what I need to do is add works to my faith in order for my faith to be saving faith. The thinking would go like this. If faith without works is not saving faith, then I'll take my works... I'll take my faith, I'll add some works, and then I'll be saved. But if James heard me say that, he would rush the pulpit right now and tackle me and say, no, 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 you missed the whole point there. You cannot just tack on works to your faith and be saved. This is not like ordering breakfast. You cannot order pancakes and then order a side of bacon. Right? You can't have faith and then just order a side of works to go with it. Faith and works are not two separate things. They are part of the same package. They cannot be separated. That is what the character in verse 18 is trying to do. He says, hey, look, you have faith, I have works. And James replies, no, 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 no. You show me your faith apart from your works. Now, the implication is that you cannot show faith without works because he's already said that faith without works is dead. James said, He goes on and he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, my works, look at my life, look at the things I do, look at my works. If you examine my life, it will give evidence of my faith. You'll see it. I'll show you my faith by the way that I act. That's how you're going to see it. 
My works confirm the reality of my faith. Now this is going to become hugely important point in a moment, but before we get there, look at the language that James is using to make this point. Verse 19, he says, look, if you think that you can somehow have faith without the presence of fruit, godly works in your life, or if you think that you could have works that are truly good and God-glorifying without the presence of faith in your life, if you think that those can somehow be separated, do you know what? Your attitude comes perilously close to the attitude of the demons. He says even the demons believe that God is one. And it, 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 it doesn't produce good works in their life. It makes them shudder. In the Gospels, when you read the Gospels and the story of Jesus when he walked the earth, who is the only group in the Gospels that consistently recognizes the power and the authority of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about that as you read the Gospels? Who gets it right every time? It's not the disciples. They are consistently confused about who Jesus is. It's not his family. For the most part, uh, they don't seem to get it. It's not the Pharisees, the professional religious guys. They don't get it. It's not the secular authorities. It's not the politicians. They don't get it. Do you know who gets it right every time? The demons. The demons get it. They understand who he is. They're the only ones that understand who he is. What is the point that James is making here? He's comparing people who think faith can be separated from works with the demons who apparently understood the concept that Jesus is the Son of God, but believing that, knowing that truth, did not produce the fruit of good works in their lives. Now that's an amazingly strong analogy that James is making. Faith without works is apparently the kind of faith that demons have. And then James moves on to illustrate his point from the Old Testament. He refers back to Genesis 22. That's when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll show you. And how did Abraham respond? He responded with faith. And what did that look like? Well, it looked like loading up the wood for the burnt offering and heading off to the mountain. Now notice the way that James points to those actions, those works, and he shows how those actions were intrinsically and inseparably linked to his faith, right? You you don't load up the wood and grab your son and head off to the land of Moriah unless you have faith. The actions illustrate faith. James says in verse 22, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Faith and works are linked. Faith is active with works. Faith is completed by works. True faith and works are not two separate things. They are part of the same package. And the conclusion that James draws is that the faithful works of Abraham are a fulfillment of the the covenant promise that he received in Genesis 15, when it says that God gave Abraham a promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And Abraham believed that promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. Abraham had faith in the promises of God, and according to James, that faith was fulfilled, was completed, 
when Abraham's works gave evidence that his faith was real, right? His faith was evidenced by or justified by his works. And now we've come to the main problem that some people have with James. In verse 21, James says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And in verse 24, he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But instead of pulling that verse out of context, we've approached it by following the flow of James's argument over the past 10 verses. And we see that when James uses the word justified, or, or maybe in your translation, they use the phrase considered righteous, same thing, justified, considered righteous. He's using that phrase in a very specific way. He's not talking about our eternal standing before God, our justification in terms of being declared righteous by grace through faith in Christ. That's how Paul uses the term in Romans 3 when he says we're justified by faith apart from works. But it's not how James is using it. James means, and this has been his point all along, the faith of Abraham was justified or was confirmed or was shown to be real by his works, by his willingness to trust God and sacrifice Isaac. It comes back to this distinction we made earlier between theoretical faith and functional faith. Any faith that is limited to the realm of theory and doesn't work itself out practically is not faith. Functional faith is justified by or proven authentic by the very fact of the practical fruit that it bears in the life of a believer. So when someone claims to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, those claims are justified by evidence of godly works in their life. That's what James means when he says we're justified by our works. And James then makes the same point using the figure of Rahab from the book of Joshua. Rahab believed um, that she, she lived in Jericho. She was from a different religion, but she... she she knew the Israelites were going to attack them, but she believed that the God of the Israelites was the true God of the universe. In verse 11, she says to the Israelite spies, the Lord your God, he's God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then after making that confession of faith, which is what that is, her actions confirm that she really believes it because she then goes on to aid Israel in their attack of Jericho. And so it's the same point that James made with regard to Abraham. Rahab confessed faith with her lips and then her actions justified that confession or, or gave evidence that that confession was real. So to sum up here, James is using the word justified differently than Paul does in Romans 3.28. James is not saying that our works somehow earn our justification. James is not saying that our works contribute to our salvation. James is saying that our claim to faith is proven or confirmed by our works. So when James says that we're not justified by faith alone, he does not mean that we're saved by our works. He is simply making the point that faith, true faith, saving faith, is never alone. It is always accompanied by, confirmed by, justified by our works. 
That is why when somebody asks you, or when in a quiet moment you ask yourself, how do I know that I'm saved? What Christian hasn't at some point asked themselves that question? How do I know that I'm saved? When you ask yourself that question, do not look first to your works. Do not say to yourself, well, I know I'm saved because I pray and because I go to church and because I help the poor and because I'm an elder and because of whatever else that you can put on your resume of stuff that you do for God. If you go there first, you miss the whole point of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Those things are the fruit. Those things are the outworking of your faith. But when you consider the question, how do I know that I am saved? Then do what the Bible says to do and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is how we know we're saved, because by grace through faith we have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And through our salvation we are grafted onto the living vine. We were once dead sticks, but now we're living branches. We have become alive, and because we are alive in Christ, then we bear fruit. And that fruit is evidence of real faith. It's only then when we're grafted onto the living Christ that we're able to do good and godly works of righteousness. They flow out of our lives as fruit of our faith. Our works don't save us, but saving faith produces works. I'll say that again. It's James's point. It's the whole point of the sermon. Our works don't save us, but saving faith produces works. And God provides us, each one of us, everyone in this room, with daily opportunities to live that out, to put that into practice. And I know, I'll say it again, I know that we're still sinners. I know that we still fail. I know that we sometimes miss those opportunities. And when we fail, and when we miss those opportunities, we can rest in the fact that God's grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. But as we grow in our faith, there should be an increasing family resemblance between us and our Savior, and there should be the ever-increasing presence of works, fruit, that give, gives evidence of real saving faith. That's what James said. That's what Paul said. That's what the Bible says. Let's live that out. I invite you to pray with me. Holy Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the multiple authors who you inspired to contribute to Holy Scripture, and thank you that you are the one author of all of it, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. And I thank you for the faith that you have imparted to us. If we have faith, it's not because we created it or made it, but it's a gift that you have given to us. And I pray that the faith that we have would be lived out in practice. I pray for works. I pray for faith that results in fruit. I know that there are so many people in this church that are bearing such beautiful fruit for the glory of your name. We can see the faith as we look at the fruit. And I pray that increasingly our church would uh, be an orchard 
full of beautiful living trees grafted on to the Savior and bearing beautiful fruit to the glory of your great name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.